Okay. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord, we thank you again for the gift of morality, the gift of reason, uh, that we may understand not just uh, what you want us to do, but also why. Lord, uh, we know that uh, sin has clouded our, our reason. Lord, help uh, us to listen to the church so that we can more clearly understand what is right and wrong. Lord, we ask you to bless this evening, bless our time together. We ask this in your name. Amen. In your Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. I am. So, um, so tonight is on false moral ideas. Uh, so, first we have to go through some definitions. So, there's, uh, the first definition is intrinsically evil acts. Uh, so, intrinsically evil acts means that these acts are always evil no matter what the circumstances or intentions are, right? Um, so examples would be like rape, murder, adultery. Uh, they can never be good acts. Um, try to think of what a counter example would be. Um, like maybe you could say like helping the poor is like a good thing to do. But if you're doing it for like, I don't know, to look good politically, uh, your the action would be good, but your intention would be bad. Like it's just to look good, right? But these are actions that are intrinsically evil. Like they're just evil no matter what your intention are. Uh, like they can never be good. Um, and so again, those are like rape, murder, adultery. Um, a person can commit an intrinsically evil act, but not commit a sin. And so, uh, remember, uh, yeah. I was going to ask, um, what about like, like killing like Osama bin Laden? Uh, so, that's, uh, so that gets into um, the principle of double effect in just war theory, that um, he would be considered a combatant, not a... Um, uh, well, I can't think of the term, um, an innocent person, he's not an innocent person, he's very much involved in the in a war, um, and so he would be considered a combatant, not an innocent uh, person. Um, and so, just war theory allows you to, um, and we'll talk more about that next time. Um, so, uh, so again, remember that uh, three things are uh, required for a um, mortal sin. One, it has to be a grave matter or like a grave act. Two, you have to know that it's a grave act. And three, you have to freely commit it. Um, and so, um, so you can't commit intrinsically evil act but not commit a sin if you don't know that it's a sin. Um, so, uh, the second definition is objective morality. So again, as Catholics, we believe that, um, that there is actual right and wrong. Uh, examines the rightness or wrongness of human acts as they are in and themselves. Uh, so objective morality focuses on principles and asks questions like, are abortion and euthanasia seriously wrong, and if so, why? Uh, so objective morality believes that there's ultimate truths, um, that it doesn't just depend on my opinion or uh, what I believe. 
So the opposite of objective morality is subjective morality. Um, subjective morality... Uh, um, actually, I take that back. So objective morality examines the act itself. Subjective morality um, examines like the person's kind of inner, inner life. So it examines the person's guilt or merit an individual has for his moral acts, uh, focuses on the particular moral choices, uh, asks questions like, did this person have sufficient knowledge or intent to commit a mortal sin? Uh, while objective or immoral acts may not be subjectively sinful, they remain objectively immoral. So again, so the objective morality looks at the act itself, um, and subjective morality again looks like uh, in the interior, so like what the intent was, like so having to do with the subject, uh, the person committing the act, uh, was the objective morality. It looks at the act itself. Um, so uh, the main topic of the night of uh, false ideas. Uh, so the first false idea is so-called freedom of conscience. So we looked at this a little bit before. Um, and again, this the idea that um, the Catholic Church teaches that we are to follow our conscience. Um, because we believe that uh, usually our conscience is the voice of God um, in our hearts. Um, so the false idea, though, is so-called freedom of conscience. So the idea that Catholics can disobey in good conscience the teachings of the Catholic Church. Um, but we have to remember that, yes, we're supposed to follow our conscience, but we have a prior duty to teach our conscience or to form our conscience. And so uh, we have to ask, well, what does the Church teach and then, you know, why? Um, and so to, to allow that to help form our conscience. Um, so before we follow our conscience, we have a prior obligation to form it according to the teachings of the church. Uh, Vatican II, partic uh, uh, particularly the, uh, the document Gaudium et Spes, says the con our conscience is God's voice speaking within us. Uh, not just our opinion, but still God's voice or conscience would never conflict with the teachings of the church. If it does conflict, then we know that our conscience is not the voice of God, that it's not well formed. Um, and so, uh, if our conscience is the voice of God, and the church teaches something else, we know that there's a conflict there. Like The Holy Spirit isn't going to say two different things. And so, if our conscience disagrees with the teachings of the church, that means that what we're hearing in our conscience is not the voice of God, and we need to look deeper into what the church teaches. Uh, St. Pope John Paul II often said, True freedom isn't the ability to do whatever you want, but to the ability to do what you ought. Right? And so, like... Someone who's addicted to alcohol, what they ought to do is, you know, quit after one beer. I mean, if you have built up a tolerance, maybe two or three, but uh, I definitely cannot do that. But anyways, um, but uh, yeah, if true freedom is to be able to, the ability to stop when we ought to, right? To stop drinking when we ought. But 
to not be free is to be addicted to alcohol and to keep drinking. Um, and as we know, alcoholism can affect other parts of your life, family life, you know, study and other things. And so, um, so true freedom isn't the ability to do whatever I want, but the ability to do what we ought. Um, true freedom is found in obeying the teachings of the church. Um, we believe that God is a good God, that God loves us, and that He created us, and usually, even like human beings, when we invent something, the inventor usually knows how best to use that object. Like, they're the ones who create it. They know what the intent is, like how to use it, how to turn it on and off. Like, and so, if God created us, it would make sense that He would know what, how to best operate. Like, and so, like, His teachings aren't here to be oppressive. They're actually to give us uh, the freedom, as the church has something to call it, the freedom for excellence, which is kind of what Pope John Paul II was getting at. And so, uh, yeah, true freedom is found in obeying the church because those actually give us the best chance of being the best human being we can be. Um, right, like someone who is, you know, sexually active, you know, before marriage, they have to worry about, you know, an unplanned pregnancy. They have to worry about STDs, if, especially if they're sleeping around and their partner or whoever they're having sex with is sleeping around. Like, there's just other concerns that you don't have to have if you're living according to the t uh, teachings of the church. Um, so the second false idea is the fundamental option theory. Yeah. You're talking to someone who doesn't know, like, the teachings of the church? Yeah. Um, like, is it good advice to tell them to follow their conscience? Or, like, like, is another word for it, like, to trust your gut? Um, I would say, like, to a point. I mean, right, so, um, yeah, maybe not argue from the standing, uh, the, like, the teachings of the church. But we still can use reason, right? We can argue maybe with them, like, um, yeah, I mean, like we've just said, like, you know, sleeping around, like, it's not conducive to your studies, or it's not conducive to, you know, um, having children, you know, when you want to, you know, um, when you're ready. Um, you know, alcoholism, like, it's not conducive to have a hangover, you know, for half the day and the next day, right? Um, and so we can kind of use, like, reason, be like, um, and we'll, we'll see that, like, I think it's Romans 3, 8, but, you know, um, St. Paul says that, you know, we can reason um, morality even outside of God, right? That, you know, some of the particular things may not be as um, readily available to our reason, but, like, a baseline of morality, like, thou shalt not kill, like, that's kind of, like, baseline morality, like, that generally is accepted. Um, and so, like, we can use reason, you know, to some extent, to tell people to, to do the right thing. Does that kind of make sense? Okay. Um, so, to the fundamental option theory. So, this claims that once we choose to follow God then we cannot break our relationship with God except by a direct, explicit rejection of Him. 
Um, this claims that if we commit adultery or practice contraception but do not explicitly reject God, then we do not commit a mortal sin. Um, St. Pope John Paul II condemned this uh, in Veritatis Splendor. Uh, he said, If we willfully and knowingly engage in a seriously sinful act, then we have deliberately disobeyed and indirectly rejected God and have lost sanctifying grace. Um, and so again, remember, that's what mortal sin is, is that it puts us outside of uh, God's saving grace. And so that's why we have to go to confession um, to... I don't know, to get back in uh, that saving grace. And so grace is always alive. That's um, active grace. But sanctifying grace uh, dies in our soul when we commit a mortal sin. And so to revive that, uh, to resuscitate, or however you want to put it, uh, it's necessary to go to uh, confession. So, yes? Would that then imply that like, if someone wasn't Catholic, like a non-Catholic Christian, if they... If they were like in a state of mortal sin and they like wanted to come back to sanctifying grace, they couldn't. So, uh, I mean, that touches on a couple of things. So, I would argue, I would argue that most non-Catholics don't even know the difference between mortal sin and venial sin. And so, um, so remember the three parts that are necessary for a mortal sin is, you know, that it is grave matter and that they know that it's a grave matter. And I would argue that most non-Catholics, they, because they don't know the difference between mortal and venial sin, um, and so because they haven't received the sacrament of, of baptism in the Catholic Church, you know, um, yeah, so... Yeah, I would say, you know, first, um, that there is, uh, the church has said that there is the possibility of salvation outside of the church. Um, and so, um, it's possible, it's a better, it's a more sure way of salvation within the church. Um, but it is possible, there is it may be possible to be saved outside the church. And so we would pray that that person would make uh, an act of contrition or a contrite contrition of what they've done. Um, so I'm not sure if I answered that very well. But so if you're Catholic, go to confession. If you're not, pray really hard, I guess. <laughs> so, um, so, uh, yeah, the more revealed way to heaven is um, through the Catholic Church. And we, we would say that even those that are not formally Catholic uh, are still saved through the Church. Uh, that the graces um, are, are directed uh, to us through the Church. Um, so, I, so this fundamental option theory, to me... Um, in some ways, not to um, put Protestants down, but Protestants, uh, some Protestants believe in assurance of salvation, right? That idea that, you know, I say the Jesus prayer, you know, I, I give my life to Christ, um, and then there's, like, nothing I can do, um, you know, to, uh, that once I've given my life to Christ, I'm saved for sure, um, Martin Luther, or was it Calvin, said, you know, 
he could kill like 500 people and then still go to heaven. Uh, there was that assurance of salvation. You know, most, I think, Protestants would say, like, if you did that, you obviously didn't really give your life to Christ in the first place. Um, uh, which to me kind of says, well, then, you know, what is the whole idea of assurance of salvation anyways if it, you're not sure? But um, but the, the fundamental option theory is, you know, this idea that, you know, if we choose to follow God, there's nothing that we can do um, to... There's no way we can commit a mortal sin, no matter what we do, as long as we choose God. As long as we're in a relationship with God. And that kind of, to me, sounds a little bit kind of like assurance of salvation. Uh, that it doesn't matter what I do, as long as I've chosen God, I'm good to go. Um, and this does. This, uh, it always conflicts with, like, not just the... You know, the Protestant Reformation started in the 1500s, uh, 1517, when Martin Luther nailed the 95 Thesis on the door in Wittenberg, Germany. Um, but, so that's only the last 500 years. But uh, this fundamental option theory uh, conflicts with 2,000 years of Catholic tradition that our actions do matter. Um, you know, that we're not, we're not saved by our works, or by, we're not saved by our actions, but a, a saving grace that's alive in our hearts should have some impact on our actions. Um, and right, that's James chapter 2, right? Like, you know, show me your faith, and he's like, but I will show you my faith through my works, Right? So, yeah, we should have faith. You know, um, it's actually grace through faith, as Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says. Chapter 2, verses 8 and 9 says that we're saved by grace through faith, and that's true. But then that, that faith has to be alive in some way. And, you know, it, um, and a, a saving grace that's alive in our hearts would allow us to kill 500 people or whatever. Um, so not that the works save us, but the works um, should be evident of the saving grace that's within us. Um, so the third false idea is situation ethics. Um, the idea that moral absolute laws don't exist, that there are no such things as universal moral norms that hold for all times and places. So uh, this is kind of like there's no objective morality. Like we've talked about, like you know, rape is always wrong, adultery is always wrong. Like, um, I mean, basically it's relativism, right? Like, whatever is good for you is good for you. Whatever is good for me is good for me. You know, there's no absolutes, and so there may be a situation where, at least for me, rape is an okay thing. You know, so. If I can, there may be a situation out there where it, it's not an absolute wrong. Like there may be a situation where it's actually okay. Um, again, this idea uh, is that we must determine the morality of acts by looking at what each situation calls for, not relying on uh, non-objective universal principles. Um, this was condemned by the Vatican way back in 1956. Um, again, it's a fancy way of 
uh, doing our own thing, making up our morality as we go. Um, so uh, the fourth um, false idea is values clarification. This is just a sophisticated version of situation ethics, the one we just talked about. Um, basically, this is saying to be a moral person, you just have to be consistent, right? So whatever system you have, um, it has to be. You have to like be consistent in how you apply it. Um, you can consult other moral systems, but. Uh, he or she is the final authority on what is right and wrong. So again, I become the authority of, of what is right and wrong. Um, and so you can be authority of what is right and wrong for you, uh, but I'm the authority of what is right and wrong for me. Right? So a person is asked to replace the objective moral law with his or her own uh, subjective fallible opinion. Um, I mean, that's what we would say, right? That... Um, that there is an objective moral law that God has for us, but um, values clarification would say like, I don't believe that, therefore I'm going to um, live by my own opinion, my own moral law. Um, so, right, because we're all fallen human beings, we're all fallible, and we believe that that's the consequences of the fall, the consequences of sin, is that we don't always see clearly what is right and what is wrong. You know, that, that's why we have disagreements on uh, morality. It's because uh, as fallen human beings, you know, our, um, our view of what is right and wrong has been clouded. Right? And so, w uh, what was the tree that they weren't supposed to eat from? The knowledge of good and evil. And before Adam and Eve, all they knew was God. All they knew was good. They didn't know evil. And so the tree gave them knowledge of evil, but it also gave them... I mean, they learned what... They now knew what evil was, but then they also... That got muddled. Like, they were no longer able to clearly see what was good and what was clearly bad. And so... Um, yeah, they learned what evil was, they, or what bad things were, but it, it also got muddled in with what the good was. They weren't always able to completely separate or see clearly which was which. Um, and so, uh, situation ethics, uh, values clarification is dangerous because it will then rely on our own fallible um, view of our own actions, right? And, you know, we see that all the time. We see people justify horrible things. Right? Um, you know, sometimes even in our own daily life, right? We see people do horrible things, but they, they're somehow able to justify it, you know, um, in, their own, uh, in their own mind. Or even like, you know, um, like cheating on homework or a test. Like, you know, I would have done it anyways, but I was up late, you know, um, and I, I just need to get this done. I know all the information, but, you know, I, I just need to get a good grade. And so it's okay if I cheat this one time and, you know, because uh, I already know how to do it. So it's okay this one time. Like we justify, you know, doing wrong things all the time. And so, um, but you know, values clarification is taking that a step further and saying like, well, that's my whole moral system. Like, I don't believe in objective morality. Like, 
you know, whatever I decide, you know, is what I'm going to live by. Um, the the fifth uh, false idea is the ends justify the means. So that's exactly what it sounds like. Um, the the idea that we can do evil to achieve um, a good result, a desired good. Um, you know, so obviously some Catholic examples. You know, killing a baby to save the life of a mother. Um, you know, uh, using contraception to avoid, you know, um, having children, especially maybe if at the present time, you know, we can't afford to have another child, a couple can't afford to have another child. You know, instead of uh, practicing natural family planning or abstinence, you know, uh, to use contraception. Um, you know, or like, um, what's the one that came up recently? Um, like if you know that your sexual partner has an STD, you know, to use contraception or to use a condom or whatever um, to achieve the good of, of lessening the chance of contracting the STD. You know, rather than, again, you know, um, holding up the ideal of, of chastity, of abstinence. Um, you know, they're going to do it anyway, so, you know, might as well give them protection, right? Um, or, you know, ca uh, high school is handing out condoms, right? Teenagers are going to have sex anyways, right? And so, um, we need to hand out condoms rather than to, to call them to the greatness of chastity. Um, so, um, so, again, the ends justify the means. Usually, um, People who uh, live by this moral system accept that moral, universal moral law and acknowledge uh, evil acts like abortion but claim that evil acts can be justified to achieve good results. And again, uh, this contradiction uh, contradicts Romans chapter 3 verse 8 that we cannot, uh, St. Paul says we cannot do evil to attain good. Um, no, it's absurd to say that we can violate the moral law in order to keep it. Um, and if you take into the extreme, the ends justify the means, you end up with Hitler and Stalin, right? Who killed um, millions of people to advance political stability, economic prosperity, and even uh, to advance medical um, knowledge, right? They, uh, Jews were subhuman, and so we can run all sorts of tests on them, um, you know, and treat them you know, as, as subhuman. Why? Because we're going to gain knowledge from it. Yes? Obviously, this is a very hypothetical yeah. situation. But would it not be moral to kill Hitler then? Uh, like when he was a baby, sorry. Would it not be moral to kill him as a baby to save the millions of Jews? To kill him as a baby? Yeah. Because um, I feel like that would be like a better like, example of like, and it's just, or just, Yes. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Um, so the question is, uh, could you kill Hitler as a baby? Um, you know, I guess assuming knowing what we know now, Obviously right? Need to know. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Take a time machine or something, yeah, right? Yeah. Like uh, we're getting into sci-fi. Um, uh, the the Catholic answer is no. Um, that. We really honestly do have free will, and that 
you know, I mean, aside from time machines and whatever you want to call it, like the a person's path is not written. Like he still has free will, um, and so as we were talking earlier, like at that point, Hitler is not a combatant. He's an innocent baby. Yeah, and so, but like, I mean, later, right, the U.S., um, CIA, or I don't know, they, they did. They attempted to kill Hitler. And, uh, you know, maybe it was a little early, I think in the mid-30s, maybe 38. And so I don't know if you could quite qualify him as a combatant at that point, but, I mean, he was still has some pretty radical ideas, even in the 30s. And so, um but yeah, so obviously later you could, but like definitely not as a baby. Yeah. So like after he did all those things, it would be like morally sound to just like walk up to him and shoot him in the face. Um. Well, I mean, it depends what you mean later. Like, um. Like when the, the U.S. like stormed. Like when they like stormed the like, yes, then he, yeah. I mean, you're, you're still in the middle of a war, and he's still like, you know, even even towards the end, Hitler did some massively horrible things. Like he he purposely accelerated the gassing of Jews as the Allies, you know, advanced. You know, rather than just giving up and saying like. Okay, I'm obviously not going to win. He he said I'm not going to win, so I'm going to accelerate the genocide. Which and so yeah, you definitely could. What about like after he's no longer a threat to anyone? So say he's like in jail. That's why I hesitate because I don't think you could then, because he's no the war isn't active. He's no longer combating. He's no longer in control of anything. Like he's not. Uh, yeah, he's not a combatant at that point. He's a, you know, a shriveled up old man sitting in a jail without any power to do anything. You know, and so in some ways he becomes a, an innocent person again. He has a horrible track record, a horrible history. But at, again, he, he, at that point he kind of becomes an innocent person again. How can he become innocent again? Because he, he's not... Um, He's like so. If we're thinking of the situation the way I'm thinking of it, like he does, he's not in power anymore. Um, he has no armies to move. Um, there's no active war going on, um, at least because of him or that he's directing. Um, and so, yeah, he has done some horrible, horrible things, um, but he is no longer uh, a combatant in an active war. Um, you know, and so, um, so yeah, in some ways he is a civilian, um, he's, you know, a non-combatant, and so, um, he's done some horrible things, um, but he, uh, yeah, he, he, I think the church would say it would be wrong to kill him at that point, um, which is an interesting overall question that, in the history of Christianity, um, capital punishment has been allowed. Um, the idea that some people are just too dangerous to society uh, to let them keep on living 
Um, and so it, um, it has been allowed in the past that you know, we leave them up to the mercy of God, but as for our society, it's just too dangerous to let them live. Because of modern jail systems and things like that, um, a lot of moral theologians and even um, the last couple of popes have said that capital punishment is actually um, unwarranted or it, it no longer uh, necessary in, a, in the modern world. Um, and so um, a lot of Catholic social justice have, have tried to um, get people not released from jail, but uh, what you call it, released, I don't know what the terminology is, but released from their capital punishment, you know, for, yeah, get them off of death row, yeah. Um, and so, uh, there has been that part of Catholic social justice to do that, to try and get people off of death row. Be um, So some, uh, so some Catholics uh, try to justify abortion, euthanasia in certain situations because they say uh, the good outweighs the bad. Um, one extreme example uh, that was in the book that I was using, um, what if a retarded girl is raped and her pregnancy is life-threatening? Um, no, that's obviously an extreme example and you never want that. but. No, I don't know if it's come up yet, but uh, there are some situations that are just, they sting, you know? Um, and there are certain times when God calls us to tough things. Um, and it, it, in some ways it seems wrong, like, you know, to expect this girl to carry the child to term. Um, but there are just things that happen in a fallen world that just, there's no good answers. And, you know, life is hard. And sometimes God calls us to do the hard thing. Um, you, know, you know, retarded girl or not, like, you know, to be raped and to be expected to carry the child, like, I can't imagine what that's like, you know. Um, and, uh, that would be really hard, you know, to have that constant reminder of that day. Um, I mean, it was a fiction book, um, and I forget the title, but um, the woman ended up seeing the child as um, kind of a victory over what over her rape. Like she saw it as like the that uh, a hope, a good thing that came out of that night, out of that experience. Um, and so I know that you know. It, it may take a lot to get there, but I know that that can happen, yeah. So what about like in that situation, like, so say this disabled girl was like given like a hysterectomy or something to prevent the chance of pregnancy if she was ever raped, what, what would be like the moral teaching on like that kind of contraception, like preemptively, like in case she was ever raped? Um... So, the church would say um, that uh, we can't mutilate our bodies um, 
And so I thought, I think that was under one of the principles, but yeah, like we can't mutilate our bodies um, f uh, to, to prevent a pregnancy. Um, and so even in healthy, you know, normal people, you know, hysterectomies um, are, are seen as, um, because it, it's a contraceptive in some way, it's an artificial contraceptive, and so the, the sexual act should always be open to life. And I know that, you know, rape is an extreme case, um, but again, it's where the church heart asks us, you know, to do the hard thing, and that, you know, even, even a sexual act uh, of rape, you know, in some ways um, should still be open to life. Um, it's just, um, it's hard. I mean, what if, you know, the retired person got married then, you know, and they wanted to have children. I think, if I remember right, like, um, Down syndrome is not hereditary. I mean, it's, it's a chromosome in morality, but informality or whatever, but I don't think it can necessarily be genetically passed on. I don't remember for sure. Um, but, um, but yeah, like, you know, what if the, this person, you know, this uh, retired person or whatever wanted to have children later, and so a hysterectomy wouldn't allow for that. Um, you know, um, yeah, we can't, I mean, it doesn't answer your question, but you know, we can't go through life um, always preparing for the worst, right? Um, but, but I think what you're saying is like, you know, if getting pregnant is dangerous to our health, you know, what, shouldn't we do something to, uh, to make sure that she remains healthy? Is that kind of what you're saying? Yeah. Uh, and that would be a preventative way to do that, right? Um, um, yeah, what is it? Um, is it like the, is it HPV? Is that, um, like, there's like a, a sh what? Yeah, is it like a sh isn't there like a shot that like teenage girls can get even? Um, like it's a it's like a sexually transmitted disease or something, right? Um, and you can get like a vac a vaccine or a shot for it, and like they even they even encourage like teenagers to get it. Um, and again, this this idea that you know they're gonna do it anyways, and so like how do we you know, um, you know how do you know how do we plan for that? And it's just um, it's a it's a contraceptive, or I believe um, forget exactly why, but the, the again the church has said like you know um, I forget exactly why, but the church is saying that that. Um, it, that it's not good, and I, I'm trying to remember why. Um, but it's again this idea of like, you know, let's call people to the greatness of 
of chastity and to the ideal. I mean, yes, we need to live in the real in the real world in reality, but we also need to call people um, to their greatest ideal and not, you know, give them an excuse. Um, I mean, it's a little off topic, but uh, Pope Paul the Sixth in Humanae Vitae, uh, which kind of was written in the '60s and was the encyclical that upheld the church's teaching on contraception. Um, one of the um, Pope Paul predicted that one of the fallouts uh, of widespread contraception um, would be that uh, uh, that men would see, see women um, would tend to objectify women more, and it's true. Like a guy can walk into a bar and assume that he can he have sex with what probably about 80% 90% of the women in there without uh, the consequence of her getting pregnant that you know most of the women in the bar are on the pill right and so the the possibility of using the, the woman for pleasure and for sex um, without the consequence of getting pregnant um, is pretty hot, and so he can walk into a bar with that objective, um, and pretty much be assured that um, his assumption is true. Um, um, so this uh, the ends justify the means. Also, uh, is known as consequentialism or proportionalism, which was both condemned by Pope John Paul II in the Splendor of Truth. Um, the last, uh, you know, false idea is just cultural cliches, right? A lot of people uh, don't even think, even think out their moral decisions. They just, um, you know, kind of live by uh, cultural cliches, you know, look out for number one, you only live once, you know, follow your heart. Um, and the thing is, like, I don't believe these things, but, like, I found myself saying these, like, you know, um, I'm like, I'll even tell someone that, and I'm like, I don't believe that, like, why did I just say that, like, that's not how I live, but, like, and they're just, like, I, I think they're just, like, so embedded in our culture and our mind frame that, like, I at least at least I do. I find them coming out of my mouth, even though I don't even believe in them. You know, um, you know. But I love him or her. You know, it feels good. Do it. You know. Oh, we can't impose impose our morality. Um, we must be tolerant. Um, so um, when I was about your age. Um, there was something that I read and it said, uh, it's one of my favorite quotes of all time, if tolerance is your highest virtue, you believe in nothing. So not that tolerance shouldn't be something that we practice, but if it is your highest v virtue, if, if your highest value, like if, you know, say, if you say we have to be tolerant of everything, well, uh, then I'm probably going to be intolerant of people who um, believe in something, right? You know, and so it's just like, you know, if tolerance is the highest virtue, you believe in nothing. The simple form of this is, um, don't be so tolerant that your brains fall out, right? <laughs> so, um, 
And then the last cliche, right? God wouldn't want me to be unhappy. Um, and in a fallen world, our actions sometimes have consequences that make us unhappy. Um, and sometimes other people's actions have consequences for us that are unhappy. Um, and, you know, um, you know, what did I say the other day? Like, um, there's something uh, worse than death. There's something worse than being unhappy. There's something worse than whatever you want to name it. And that's going to hell. Right? And so, um, sometimes doing the right thing makes us unhappy. Sometimes doing the right thing, um, you know, makes us suffer. You know, sometimes doing the right thing um, is not what I want or not what feels good or, you know, um, is not looking out for number one. You know, but sometimes the right thing to do, um, we do it, you know, because it's the right thing to do. Um, and there's something worse than suffering. There's something worse than de even death, and that's going to hell. Um, and obviously that argument's not going to work with an atheist, but, you know, as Catholic Christians, you know, um, that we do believe that there is something worse, you know, than death. Um, and so we talked about that earlier when we talked about, um, uh, uh, gosh, why well, can't I think of the name of it right now? Um, but doing the idea, the philosophy, do that the right thing to do is the, doing the greatest good for the greatest number of people. Um, and uh, obviously as Catholics, we don't believe that. Like, you know, like, um, you know, we talked about this situation where like, if um, someone says, unless you kill this one innocent person, I'm gonna bomb the whole city and kill millions of people. And remember, the right thing to do is not to kill the one pe person. Like, that's on your soul. That's your free will coming into play. And it's not directly tied. Like, the, the bomber can, has his own free will. And he has the free will to bomb the city with a million people or not. No, he doesn't have... Just because you don't kill the one person, the one innocent person, doesn't mean that he has to bomb the city. Um, and so the right thing to do is not to kill the one innocent person. And the bomber has to exercise his own free will um, on his own. But just because you won't kill the one person, it's not like you directly press the button to kill the million people. Like the bomber did that on his own. Um, Uh, so all of these false theories are just clever ways of making human beings and not God the final judge of what is right and wrong, um, which is what's been true since the fall of Adam and Eve, right? We've tried to decide our own, um, make our own judgment about what right and wrong is. Um, divine revelation teaches that the power to decide right and wrong always, um, uh, is with God and not with us. Uh, so, uh, that's all I have. Any other questions, concerns, thoughts? So,
but um yeah uh next week uh not next week we actually next week i'm gone and then um the week after that uh the tuesday is the theology on tap and so heller felt like it wouldn't be good to have two things back to back and so uh, our final and fourth uh class won't be until the fourth until the first wednesday in november um, and so uh, that'll be the fun one. We'll try and uh, squeeze uh, practical discussions in. Um, hopefully, it'll be a little more discussion style. But we'll talk about like IVF, um, abortion, euthanasia, um, and so we'll talk about those types of things directly. So, yeah.